The North Korean leader is on his way to Russia. What's the context for the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin? Kim Jong-un has already met with Vladimir Putin, and this just further legitimates his, his rule. Plus, Kyiv responds to perceived criticism over the speed of its counteroffensive. For, for Ukraine to make the uh, progress slow but steady progress, it's already, she said, miracle. And later in the program, the challenges facing Western nations trying to decouple their nuclear fuel supplies from Russian sources. Today is Monday, September the 11th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Miller in Washington. The Kremlin says that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will visit Russia in the coming days, doing so at the invitation of Russian President Vladimir Putin. South Korean media reported on Monday that a special train, presumed to be carrying Kim, had departed Pyongyang and that a meeting with Putin could take place as early as Tuesday. The U.S. Pentagon also said that Kim was on his way to Russia. Meanwhile, residents of Russia's far eastern city of Vladivostok said on Monday that they were not sure if the North Korean leader would actually visit the city, but also said that Russia and North Korea have common interests. This resident, speaking to Reuters News, said that a meeting makes sense, showing the world that both countries can stand up for themselves. Now, for more about the complex relationship between North Korea, the country formerly known as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or the DPRK, and Russia, I spoke with Alexis Studden, professor of history specializing in modern Japan and Korea, as well as international history at the University of Connecticut. What do you see as, as uh, you know, putting this in context, what's in it for Kim Jong-un to go to this this Eastern Economic Conference in Russia? That's an excellent question. And there's a really interesting parallel with meeting with uh, Donald Trump in Singapore and Hanoi. Kim Jong-un has already met with Vladimir Putin, and this just further legitimates his, his rule. And so for him, this is, you know, it's his first trip post-COVID outside the country. And it shows that he is a player on the international stage, which for an entirely closed country, for all intents and purposes, as North Korea is for most North Koreans, when this photo op plays out in the domestic press in North Korea, he's a global leader. You know, speaking about that, the, the global leader and a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin We've just had the Foundation Day festivities in North Korea. Uh, you know, Kim Jong Un released pictures of that what he was calling uh, the, the new nuclear submarine. Uh, it, it's widely also suspected that perhaps this meeting between Kim Jong Un and Vladimir Putin will be about some kind of arms deal in which Russia would purchase weapons from North Korea. And look, going back, right, 1950, it was Russia and, and to some extent China. Who who are supplying weapons to North Korea with their war against the South? Historically, what do you see as the significance of that kind of interaction? What Kim is doing is showing he can act independently. What Putin is showing is they can act independently despite 
the you know the the war criminal warrant out on Putin. He can go to Vladivostok to the the very. I have stood in that same venue giving a lecture totally publicly. It's not you know it that was invited. Uh, that was years ago, but it's it's a venue in which international forum take place. And so Kim and Putin will have a photo op to show that there is what used to be called the non-aligned movement, but that they are able to interact without the interference of the United States telling them what to do. Now, obviously, that's constrained, uh, but he'll get there. Um, and Putin and he will show that that there is an alternative to the Washington dialogue, and it threatens Washington's view of how to organize our allies in the war that Putin began. And so for both Putin and Kim, this is a way to demonstrate that they are still in power. Noticeably absent, of course, is China. So given that China is not there, the other you know major player in the region that is a close ally of North Korea, what are you looking at in, in terms of possible outcomes or as a possible direction of where things may go next once this conference concludes? Well, I think it will be interesting to parse what is traded for traded. Uh, you know, what North Korea wants from Russia is the technology to use the, the weapons it's developing. And that's what they have received from Russia over the past, I don't know, even 20 years that a lot of people in Washington missed, uh, you know, to, to achieve the arc on their weapons, to achieve the mock speed that North Korea has achieved came from Russian scientists employed in Pyongyang. Uh, so whatever technology is transferred, that's what Pyongyang wants primarily. Uh, secondarily, maybe it will receive food imports. And that, to me personally, is something we all should pay attention to because nobody's paying attention to the North Korean people in the middle of all of this. Because we keep hearing reports of a renewed uh, food crisis. You know, our, But we're not talking about that. We're only talking about missiles. And so let's measure what technology is transferred and how much food is transferred from Russia, especially when there's this enormous discussion about grain exports uh, from Ukraine to the rest of the world. Is Russia going to transfer food to North Korea? What Russia wants clearly is whatever weapons, whatever it can get from North Korea. I think also important to remember is will North Korean soldiers be committed? Because, you know, you mentioned about the, the Korean War, uh, Russia, yes, the Soviet Union, excuse me, uh, was technically, you know, of course, on North Korea's side. But they didn't really show up compared to the Chinese. And so Chinese soldiers are the ones that preserved what we now call North Korea. And uh, if North Korean soldiers are committed to the battle that is ongoing in Ukraine, that's also a different ballgame for the the uh, Washington alliance to consider. Alexis Dudden is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Steve. And earlier, I also spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kiev, Ukraine, who provided this update. Actually, it was quite a tough weekend, uh, not only on the front line, but also across Ukraine with, uh, with attacks uh, all over the country. Particularly, um, it was uh, quite a huge attack 
attack, uh, drone attack, uh, Saturday to Sunday uh, during the night, um, uh, which was targeting Kyiv, the capital, uh, and Kyiv region particularly. Uh, what we can what we we can confirm at this point that. Uh, there were 33 drones um, that Russian Federation used for this attack. Uh, 26 uh, of those were destroyed by Ukrainian air defense. However, uh, a lot of debris uh, were falling uh, in the Kyiv region, and most of these drones were targeting Kyiv region. Uh, and uh, at least four districts of Kyiv were uh, were affected. There are damages. There are damages of the residential buildings, also damages uh, uh, of the of the vehicles um, which were located in that areas, uh, and uh, uh, also there are reports. Uh, of the damages of the public transport vehicles. And while Americans are observing the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks, Ukraine is also marking the one-year anniversary of the liberation of Izum. One of the main success last year for Ukrainian armed forces, uh, because the city of Zoom was one of the most strategic uh, points uh, at the front line uh, at that point, and uh, not only because of its strategic uh, location, but also um, due to the fact that Russian uh, forces uh, had a huge concentration of, of their manpower and uh, equipment in that area. And in Chernikova in Kiev, Ukraine. Now, in a recent interview with VOA's Eastern Europe Bureau Chief Miroslava Gangadze, Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister, Hanna Miller, addresses what some have said is a lack of success in Ukraine's counteroffensive. Hanna uh, Miller, I actually reached her when she was uh, traveling to, to the east. Uh, she um, uh, said that... Um, Ukraine took a risk uh, when the uh, Russians, uh, with Russian superiority, uh, she said that Russia is a much stronger power in um, uh, amount of people uh, in, the, in the forces as well as uh, in, in military um, uh, equipment and so on. And Ukraine is not even close to reach that level. So for for Ukraine to make the uh, progress slow but steady progress, it's already, she said, miracle. Uh, she said that um, Ukraine is uh, fighting in conditions uh, where the Russians have a superiority, as I said, in number of people. And uh, Russian launched um, uh, missiles over the entire territory every day. And Ukraine doesn't have any safe space. And specifically, Ukraine is not... Um, uh, protected from uh, from the uh, sky. And Miroslava, that's been one of the themes over the past year and a half. Since the onslaught of the war, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and others in the government have been asking Western governments for more military aid. And that has come in, in the form of HIMARS, Emron Abrams tanks, uh, Bradley fighting vehicles, the, the F-16s that will be delivered later. What else did the minister say that Ukraine needs? Um, she said that Ukraine uh, and Ukrainians uh, value uh, this help very much. And they understand very well that without it, um, Ukraine will not be able to liberate uh, its territories um, and will not be able to win. 
there is one uh, the 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 support the Western support is one of the most important factors for Ukraine to withstanding Russian aggression. Um, however, uh, it's never enough. And uh, Russia have much more weapons, as I said, and this is exactly what um, slows down the actually uh, Ukrainian action on the ground, um, as well as Russian um, um, uh, fortification and uh, the defense lines that they built on the east and the south. Uh, right now, um, she said that Ukraine seek. Um, uh, long-range weapons uh, to completely liberate the territory uh, as well as um, they need a more um, uh, more support to to prote protect Ukraine from the sky specifically she she was talking about uh, military planes because Russia has a, a huge superiority in in the sky uh, over uh, over Ukraine. There was like a two uh, important uh, points that she mentioned, as well as um, demining demining uh, uh, equipment because she said in that in some areas. I mean, first of all, Ukraine is the most um, mined. Uh, country in the world right now, and uh, to liberate territories, Ukrainian soldiers sometimes have to basically, she said, by hands removed some of the mines because the mines, she said, uh, the, the 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 Russian forces put the mines on three level underground to actually pre prevent Ukrainians to uh, to go forward to liberate the territory. As always, Miroslava, thank you very much for your time and for your reporting, being able to get that interview. Miroslava Gangadze is VOA's Eastern Europe Bureau Chief, joining us from Warsaw, Poland. Again, Miroslava, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken tried to reassure Ukraine on Sunday that it will continue to be supported by its Western allies. Russia, however, had just held local elections in four Ukrainian areas it illegally annexed, and Moscow appears determined to expand its invasion. VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias has those details. Local elections were held Sunday in 79 Russian regions and four Ukrainian provinces illegally annexed by Moscow. The vote in the occupied regions has been strongly decried as a sham by Kyiv and its Western allies. Russian election officials said forces loyal to Kyiv tried to sabotage them. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who last week toured Ukraine, told ABC's This Week show that he doesn't see any indication that President Vladimir Putin wants to engage in meaningful diplomacy to end the conflict. Russia invaded Ukraine in February of last year. Everyone wants this war to end, but it has to end on just terms and on durable terms that reflect uh, Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Lincoln highlighted the suffering that Ukrainian civilians regularly go through as a result of Russian attacks. He was asked whether the United States will send long-range missiles to Ukraine, which could reach deep into Russian territories. It's not only the, the weapon system itself, it's uh, are Ukrainians trained on it? Are they able to maintain it? Can they use it effectively? 
as part of their strategy. And we are working on that every single day. In terms of their uh, targeting decisions, it's their decision, uh, not ours. Last week, Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov dismissed the importance of U.S. support to Kyiv. They intend to help Kyiv further as long as it is needed. In other words, they intend to support Ukraine further for as long as it takes and to keep it, in fact, in a state of war and continue waging this war until the last Ukrainian, sparing no expense on it. That's how we perceive it. We know it. This won't affect how the special military operation is going. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov hailed as, quote, an absolute success the recent summit of the group of the 20 most advanced and emerging economies in New Delhi. The summit's statement didn't explicitly condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Blinken told ABC the support for Kyiv was there. Countries are feeling the consequences and want the Russian aggression to stop. And I think the statement reflects uh, the strong support that virtually every country in the G20 has for Ukraine. Blinken also underscored how Russia's blockade of Ukrainian grain exports is exacerbating food insecurity worldwide. Moscow reiterated this weekend that its conditions to restart the so-called Black Sea Grain Initiative haven't changed. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News. U.S. National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications John Kirby spoke to VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell on the sidelines of the G20 in India about the president's focus on Ukraine at the meeting with world leaders. Can you just run us through the argument that the president is making to G20 countries to rally support for Ukraine? A big focus of the president today is going to be on economic opportunities and investment in lower and middle income countries. And I know you're probably thinking that doesn't have anything to do with Ukraine, but it has everything to do with Ukraine. Because the war in Ukraine has put a huge strain on lower middle income countries when it comes to food security, energy security, inflationary pressure. Uh, you can't discount the effect uh, that Mr. Putin's war has had on the global economy and what the president wants to pursue. And he'll mention the war in Ukraine specifically as he pursues this, are opportunities for these lower middle income countries to be able to pursue investment opportunities and loans for infrastructure development that are high quality, that are transparent, uh, and that uh, will really meet their local needs uh, as best as possible. So the president fully intends to make the war in Ukraine a centerpiece of his discussions here today. The group of 20 major economies reached a hard-fought compromise over the war in Ukraine and papered over other key differences in a summit declaration at the weekend, presenting few concrete achievements in its core remit of responses to global financial issues. Both diplomats and analysts said the surprise consensus in the summit statement on the Russia-Ukraine conflict avoided a split in the group. The summit declaration avoided condemning Russia for the war in Ukraine, but highlighted the human suffering the conflict had caused and called on all states not to use force to grab territory. Few had expected the G20 to reach a consensus on the document, let alone on the first afternoon of the two-day summit, as the group had failed to agree on a single communique at the 20 or so ministerial meetings this year due to the hardened stance on the war. And finally, 
Last month, Canada imposed sanctions on Russia's nuclear sector. Targets included subsidiaries of Russia's Ross Adams State Nuclear Energy Corporation. The U.S. imposed similar sanctions back in April. Yet the West continues to have ties with Ross Adam, which dominates the nuclear fuel supply chain. Oleski Kovalenko brings us that story, which is narrated by Anna Rice, to round us out. The West has been steadily reducing its dependence on Russian fossil fuels, but extending this to nuclear fuel is proving to be more of a challenge. According to Forbes, Russia's Rosatom State Nuclear Energy Corporation alone controls 38% of the world's enriched uranium market, with Russia as a whole holding 46%. Ukrainian authorities have repeatedly appealed to Western governments, urging them to sanction Russia's nuclear industry, specifically Rosatom. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has also urged European Union leaders to take a tougher stance. Ukraine doesn't understand why there are still no sanctions imposed on Rosatom, whose people continue to occupy the Zaporizhia nuclear plant and put our safety at risk. The answer lies in import numbers. According to Euratom, supply agency of the European Atomic Energy Community, Europe reported getting about 17% of its uranium in 2022 from Russia and about 27% from Russian ally Kazakhstan. The EU's reliance on Russia's nuclear fuel is expected to grow as nations embrace alternatives to fossil fuels. In 2022 alone, U.S. companies purchased nuclear fuel from Russia worth $1 billion. In April 2023, the U.S. imposed sanctions against Rasatom subsidiaries. Back in the early days of sanctions, when I was doing them for the U.S. government in 2014, I urged every company I could find that was doing business in Russia to find a way to diversify their sources so the Russians wouldn't have leverage. And I think we are rather late in diversifying our sources of of nuclear material. Sonia D. Schmidt agrees. The Virginia Tech Associate Professor of Science and Technology Studies says the West can find other uranium suppliers, but it'll be tough to find alternative ways to enrich uranium. Uh, uranium enrichment is not something that you can set up overnight. That's a process that takes time, that takes investment, and that um, that is that is expensive. Um, so you know, if you in a, in a capitalist market, you look for who has already set up such facilities and who can provide that. Ukraine aims to become such a supplier. Minister of Energy German Galushenko says the country signed a deal in June 2022 for the U.S. nuclear power company Westinghouse to supply fuel to all Ukrainian atomic power stations. Galushenko believes Ukraine can start producing its own nuclear fuel in about three years. In time, Ukraine might supply nuclear fuel to Czechia, Slovakia, Finland and Bulgaria that are using the same reactors as Ukraine. This will allow us to get rid of the Russian monopoly that sadly exists today. Some European countries have already taken steps to overcome their dependence on Russian nuclear fuel. Finland has terminated its agreement with Russia to build a new power station and neighboring Sweden's state-owned utility Vattenfall has refused to buy Russian nuclear fuel at all. 
Many Western countries still depend on Russia's nuclear fuel, and this dependence slows the effects that sanctions might have on Russia. The solution, experts believe, lies in finding alternative sources, and Ukraine hopes it can become one of them. For Alexei Kovalenko in Washington, NRI's VOA News. And that's going to do it for us today. On behalf of everyone at VOA, we thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Miller. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.